now, and everyone else, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Well, it's always interesting to read about things that started small and simple and then end up growing into a big, global, widespread thing. And there's plenty of examples of this in, in the world, uh, plenty of businesses that we've seen this happen with. But, but one that I was reading about this week was the, uh, the Yankee Candle Company. Has anyone ever heard of Yankee Candle Company? Anyone have Yankee Candles at their house right now? Okay, okay. A lot of them, okay. Um, well, those, you guys might be interested in this. Everyone else, you can tune me out till we get to the word, okay? But uh, for those of you interested in the Yankee Candle Company, it was started in 1969 when a 16-year-old named Mike Kittredge didn't have any money to buy his mother a Christmas gift, okay? So a 16-year-old has no money but wants to get his mom something for Christmas, and so what does a kid do if he wants to get you know, someone a Christmas gift but can't afford anything? Well, he makes, he makes something, right? It's a homemade gift. Uh, he couldn't afford her to buy her anything. And so what he did was he melted his old crayons. He melted these old crayons down in order to make her a candle in the hope that this would be a good gift for his mom. And it would show her his, his love and, 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 and thanks for her. And he gives her this homemade candle as a gift. She obviously loves it because it's from her son. But then, then one of the neighbors sees it and they want one too. And so he makes another one, and then he sells it to another neighbor and another neighbor, and then the family is making candles in their kitchen and selling them to people out of their kitchen, and then they eventually outgrow their kitchen, and they get a small shop, and they outgrow the shop, and they eventually then grow into having thousands of employees worldwide, and they sell the company in 2015 for close to $2 billion. And it all started with a 16-year-old realizing he was too poor to buy his mom anything. It started small and simple and grew into this global, big, widespread thing. I mean, now, if you're an investor, you know, investors always hope to kind of get in on something like that when it starts small, right? You hope to invest your time and your energy and and your funds into things like that that are going to grow into this big, global, widespread thing. I mean, that's, that, that would be every investor's dream. That would be every investor's hope that they could, they could get in on, on the ground floor of things and then, and then see their investment multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. It's a a decent hope to have. Church, what is your hope this morning? What is your hope in this morning? What are you looking forward to in the future that you think is going to bring you the joy and the peace that you are longing for? Hope, Hope is a powerful mover and motivator of people, isn't it? I mean, just think about this. Think about when you put a, 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 a scheduled vacation on the calendar, all right? And, and let's say it's in eight months from now. In eight months, you're going to take a vacation. You write it on the calendar. Now, nothing has actually changed in your present situation, but now you have the hope, the expectation that this vacation is coming. You, you have this hope for this, this future change. And so the hope that you have in the future, it changes the way you live in the present. 
And so what we have to address this morning is what is your hope in this morning? And what we will see this morning through this text of Scripture is that we must hope in things. We must hope in the things that God has said are going to go global. We must hope in the things that God has said are going to start small but grow and abound and and, and cover the earth. And one of those things that we know are going to go global are people glorifying and worshiping God. What we'll see in Romans 15 is that the nations will hope in God. The nations will hope in God. But just like Yankee Candles, just like any startup business, things start small. It starts with hope abounding in us. Right? That's, that's where it has to start. It has to start in here. If we want hope to abound out there and to the ends of the earth, it has to start in here. It has to start, start with us. Because you see, church, God desires to be our ultimate hope. He wants us to find our deepest satisfaction and fulfillment in him. Because as we do that, and as we look forward to knowing and enjoying and glorifying God more and more, As we do that, God does not want to see this hope abound in us and just stop with us. No, he desires that a hope in God would go global, that it would go to the nations, that people all across the globe would come to hope in him, that people from every nation would would start to look forward to knowing and enjoying and glorifying him more. And so we are in Romans 15, continuing our our series, preaching through the book of Romans. We're picking up in verse 8. As by way of reminder, this is immediately following Paul instructing the believers in the Roman church to genuinely love one another. And that started back in Romans chapter 12. And then in Romans chapter 14, we saw how that we we are to love one another even amidst differing opinions, even amidst differing on matters of conscience and of opinion. And we learned that God is honored and glorified when we learn to live in harmony with one another and to bear with one another. We learned in the last weeks that there is hope for living in harmony with one another because Jesus Christ has come and he has taken our sin and he has taken all our wrongs and he has taken all the times we were wrong when we thought we were right. And he has taken all the times we were right, but we acted wrongly about it. And he took them upon himself, and he went to the cross, and he paid the penalty that we could never sufficiently pay. And so there is hope for living in harmony with one another because, what Christ, because of what Christ has done. And therefore, verse 7 in Romans 15 says that we now must welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. That's the ultimate purpose and goal of loving one another in spite of our differences. It's not because we deserve it. It's because he deserves it. And it brings him glory when this happens. And so now we're in verse 8, and Paul is continuing this teaching, but now he's going to show us how the work that God is doing in the Roman church and the work that God is doing in the individual Roman believer And the work that God is doing in each of us, while it starts small, 
God desires for it to go global. And this is part of the Christian's hope. Now let's clarify something about hope. Um, um, Hope, as the Bible speaks of it, is not just wishful thinking, like we sometimes use hope in the English language now. All right, hoping for something as the Bible speaks of it is not just you know wishing upon a star and just I I wish someday that this will happen. No biblical hope. It is something that we are looking forward to, with a confident expectation, because God's word never fails. So this isn't just something we're wishing for. We're not just out you know looking for a shooting star to make a wish about these things. Biblical hope is, yes, there's a future element to it. It's a looking forward to something, but it's with a confident expectation that we have because God's word never fails, that he does and accomplishes all he says. He is faithful to keep his promises. And so this is our hope. This is our, this is our confident expectation that as God causes hope to abound in us, that this is going to continue to overflow out to the nation's who will abound in hope as well. Next week, I mean, Paul here in a few verses, he's going to show the Romans that that he's trying to strengthen and unify them so that when he comes to them, that they are a healthy and established church who can send him to Spain to proclaim the gospel to those who haven't heard. But this all starts with a few people through faith in Christ. This all starts when a few people are clinging to Christ and they start, they start having the abundance of hope in their life. When a few people start looking forward to knowing and enjoying and glorifying God more and more. When a few people start hoping in God, oh, we see God works through that in order that that hope would abound to the nations for the glory of God. That's where we're going this morning. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we come before you today with grateful hearts. We do want to thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have not kept yourself hidden from us, but you are a God who is pleased to reveal himself to us. Holy Spirit, give us understanding to the truth of this word. May you open our hearts and our minds to receive it and be transformed by it. Father, we ask that you would help us know you, enjoy you, and glorify you more this morning. May hope abound here so that hope may abound to the nations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look with me now at Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God desires hope to abound to the nations because God desires to be worshipped and glorified. By the nations. And Paul, after having tried to help people in the Roman church live in harmony with those who have differing opinions over whether or not to eat meat, 
he now returns to this theme that we've seen throughout Romans and throughout his letters to the churches in that he's trying to show them how Jews and Gentiles have been united in Christ. He's trying to show them how they can be brought together. They don't need to be divided, but they're being brought together in Christ. He's trying to show them that, yes, Jesus came to the Jews, but not just for the sake of the Jews, but also for the sake of the whole world. The good news of the arrival of the Jewish Messiah was always supposed to go global. It started small with one family, with one people, and one little strip of land in the Middle East. But the work of the Messiah, the Christ, while it started small, it was always the plan for it to encompass the entire world. The promise that God made to Abraham was not just about one family or one sliver of land. No, God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, which we'll have up on the screen. Genesis 12, verse 3. This is what God promises to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then what we've already learned in Romans, in Romans 4, 13, Paul writes, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. This did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And here now in chapter 15, in verse 8, he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant, a deacon to the circumcised, speaking of the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. He confirmed all the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Speaking of Jesus. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Christ came and he did this. Everything that the people of God were hoping for, it can be found in Christ. God keeps his promises. And all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And therefore, in seeing that Christ came and fulfilled what God had promised, we learn something about God. We learn that He is trustworthy, that He is faithful. God can be trusted, church. And maybe someone here this morning just needs to hear that. Maybe you don't need to listen to the rest of the sermon. You just need to take that away, that God can be trusted. He can be. And you can hope in that. You can look forward to that, that even in the future, God can always be trusted. He has shown himself to be faithful. And we have this this Old Testament to read through and see all the promises that God has answered. But even in our own lives, this is why uh, a lot of times I'll encourage people to, to at times, uh, keep a prayer journal or, or keep some sort of journal of things that they're praying about, the way that God is working in their life. Because, oh, what, what joy that brings to be able to look back. Because sometimes when you're in the midst of stuff, you can't see how God's been faithful to you. 
But when you look back in the years past, you can say, wow, he was answering my prayers all along the way. Typically not how I wanted him to answer, but even better than how I wanted. And God has been faithful. Jesus coming, Jesus fulfilling these promises, it's showing that God can be trusted. He keeps his promises. And you're, you're, you're in a room full of people who could, who could echo that and who could give witness and testimony to that, that God has been faithful in their lives as well. But not only did Christ come to the Jews and display his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, but he also came to the Gentiles. In the Greek, it's, it's the ethnos, the nations. And in coming to the Gentiles, he puts God's mercy on display. And oh, our God is a merciful God, church. Paul describes him to the Ephesians in, in Ephesians 2 verse 4 as one who is rich in mercy. I love that. He's rich in mercy. Our God is rich in mercy. And Christ, he, he also put God's mercy on display, not so that we would all be not so, that we, we would all, not, not so that we could all be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable, but in order that the Gentiles would glorify and worship him. And here now, Paul, just in case that there are those who think that the Jews were plan A and the Gentiles were plan B, just in case people thought in this church that Gentiles were an afterthought or second-class citizens in the kingdom, no, Paul is going to show us from all these different Old Testament scriptures that this was always plan A to incorporate the Gentiles into Abraham's family. It might have been step one and step two. Step one, Jesus coming to the Jews. Step two, Jesus and his people going to the Gentiles. But it was always plan A. It was always plan A. Look at what he says. He backs it up with scripture. He says, as it is written. And then he quotes from four different Old Testament scriptures. He quotes from a historical book. He quotes from the law. He quotes from the Psalms. And he quotes from the prophets. Just in case you think he's making this up or pulling it out of context, he says the Gentiles and the Jews were always part of the plan because God is faithful. God is merciful. This has been prophesied about all along the way in every, in every genre of scripture we have. And the first one he quotes, he says, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a, a quote from 2 Samuel 22. As King David is on his deathbed, he sings about how he's looking forward to praising God among the Gentiles, among the nations. He then quotes from Deuteronomy 32, which is the, the song of Moses, who's, who's also nearing his death as well. And he sings of this. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Then he quotes from Psalm 117, a psalm that as the people sang this, they were reminded of their position with God as well as their purpose. And that was to make much of him to the nations. He quotes from Psalm 117, which the, it says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Paul then quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, The root of Jesse will come. 
Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul's saying, hey, this is where this is headed. The root of Jesse, the messianic king, has come, and he has come to rule the Gentiles, meaning to exercise authority over the Gentiles, to be their savior and their Lord as well. And it is in this Jewish Messiah that all the nations, the Gentiles included, are going to hope and trust. Jesus Christ is the hope of the Gentiles. He is the hope of the nations. And God's word says that the nations will come to hope in him. A book that has been really helpful for me and for many others, many of you, in in having a right motivation for missions is John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Let the Nations Be Glad. And in that book, he writes, you know, one of his more famous quotes, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And so it's, we, we need to keep that in mind because it's, it's helpful to remember what the ultimate goal of evangelism and missions and discipleship are. Is it simply to save people from hell? Is it simply to alleviate some temporary suffering in the world? Listen, those are, those are good motivations. Those are good motivations. But that's not the ultimate motivation. That's not the ultimate motivation we see here in Romans 15. That's not the ultimate motivation we see all throughout Scripture. Ultimately, we live on mission, we evangelize, and we disciple because God is worthy of more glory and more worship. And if that's not your motivation, then the moment the people you are ministering to start to annoy you or start to frustrate you, or start, get this, start to persecute you? Oh man, your motivation for doing missions to them, it's going to start to quickly fade out. But if your ultimate goal, if your ultimate purpose is because you know that God is worthy and deserving of more glory and more worship, and if you want to see more worship of God occur in this place, in your home, in this city, and to the nations, then that is going to be what fuels you, even in the midst, when you start getting resistance, when you start getting persecuted. Oh, church, God is worthy of more glory and more worship. And and listen, we were created to be worshipers. We were created to be worshipers of him. And yet, because of sin, we've all started worshiping lesser things. We haven't stopped worshiping. We've just started worshiping lesser things. We've put our hope and our trust in idols that have enslaved us and will one day destroy us. But then Christ came and he freed us from our enslavement to sin. And he freed us to worship the one true God, a God who is faithful and merciful and worthy of all glory and honor and praise who through Christ has welcomed us into a relationship with him, not because we were worthy or deserving of it, but for his own namesake, for his own glory. And I mean, doesn't this put some 
things in perspective that we've talked about these last few weeks going through Romans 14, talking about all the differing opinions and matters of conscience that believers might have that could divide us and break the unity that we have in Christ. Oh, church, the reason we have been brought together, the reason we've been shown mercy and grace is so that we with one voice would glorify God. It's so that we, with one voice, would hope in God and that where hope in God abounds, the worship of God abounds and that as hope in God abounds here and as the worship of God abounds here, oh, may that hope in God spread to the rest of Franklin and to Johnson County and to the nations. And so this is helping put things in perspective because now it's like, okay, listen, church, do not let matters of conscience divide or distract us from the ultimate goal. Honestly, I don't really care if some of you have a conviction about watching TV or not watching TV. It doesn't really matter that much what your preferred um, um, education, way to educate your kids is or what curriculum or, or, or what method to use. Our ultimate desire must be that we want the worship of God to increase in this place. That we want the worship of God to increase in our hearts, in our lives. We want the worship of God to increase in our homes. We want the worship of God to increase in our church and in our workplace and in in the nations. And many of you, you've been praying with us about about building stuff. God graciously gave us this building a couple years ago, and it's served us so well. And we're so grateful to the Lord for it. But many of us have started to, to feel the need and desire to be praying about God. Would you have something that is next for us? And all along the way, you've got to check your own heart in that, myself included. Like, why... Why would you want a little bigger of a space? Why, why would you want more people coming to your church? Why, why would you want this? What, what's the motivating factor here? And really, church, what it's got to be, we got to guard against pride. we got to guard against selfish ambition. And this starts with me first, and I, I, I recognize that. But ultimately, our desire needs to be that we want to see the worship of God increase in the city of Franklin. And if that means that that means God giving or, or raising up a, a church with a larger building that more people can come to and worship God and we can just support and cheer them on and come around side and rally them on, then, then, then praise be to God. We got to be willing to do that. We got to hold buildings and numbers and all these things with open hands. The thing we're holding with closed hands is that we want the worship of God to increase in this city. And if that happens here, if God provides a way that we could just, you know, welcome a few more people in here, then praise God. Let's be faithful to do that. Let's take the step of faith that we need to see that happen. But ultimately, may, it, may, may we be motivated. May we be motivated with a desire, a pure, genuine desire to see the worship of God increase in this place. And it starts with us as individuals and it starts in your homes, and it starts in your city groups, and it starts in this church. But we want to see the worship of Jesus increase in the city of Franklin, whether it's through the ministry of this church or through the ministry of another. 
And the reason that we must desire this is because God desires this. To see the worship of God increase in our lives and in this city and amongst the nations of the earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. But for hope to abound to the nations, it has to start here. Are we abounding in hope? I was reading an article this week by uh, Andy Crouch. He had a quote in it that I thought was, was helpful and insightful. He says, human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but we cannot live for four seconds without hope. In general, I, I agree with that. That was my experience when I, I used to work at the hospital. I worked in the emergency room. We would oftentimes have people come in who were, who were suicidal. And the, the tough part about that was always trying to discern if someone really was suicidal. I mean, I'm sorry to, to say that, but just th there were a decent amount of homeless that would come in in the winter just looking for, looking for warmth and shelter, and we tried to provide that to them as well. There are some people that, that, that make that complaint just trying to get, draw attention to themselves and get, get some sympathy from people. But then there are really people that are, they are ready to end, end their lives, and a lot of the crisis team and, and people that would train you on this sort of thing, they said the, the number one indicator really is to try to discern if this person has any hope. Any hope for the future. Because human beings, we really can't exist without hope. Are they hopeless? You know? Are they asking for a work note for tomorrow and making plans with their friends for lunch? If they are, they, they're, they're forward thinking still. They're still hoping for a future. Or have they lost all hope? And I think in a similar way, when you assess the life and vitality of a local church, a good diagnostic is whether or not the people have hope. Are they more concerned about trying to recapture what they had in the past, or, or do they have a hope for the future? Are they looking forward to the future? More specifically, are they looking forward to the future with God? Because more specifically, we need to ask the question, you know, are they hoping in God? Are they looking forward to knowing and enjoying and glorifying God more and more? Church, for hope to abound to the nations, hope must first abound in here. Do you have hope? Is your hope in God? Or are you hoping for the things you think you can get from God? Are you looking forward to lesser things, lesser glories, and wondering why you are always prone to despair and discouragement? Look with me now at Romans fifteen thirteen. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We have learned some wonderful things about God in this last chapter. In the verses we covered last week, we learned that he is the God of endurance and encouragement. He's the God of endurance. He patiently perseveres with us. He's the God of encouragement. He comes alongside us to comfort us and give us courage. 
We've learned already today of his truthfulness and his trustworthiness and his faithfulness. We've learned of his great mercy. And yet here is another wonderful truth about our God. He is the God of hope. He is the God of hope. Our God is the God of hope. He is looking forward with confident expectation as to what is coming in the future. I know some of you are maybe prone to be pessimistic. I don't think God's pessimistic, okay? He's got hope. He's the God of hope. He is looking forward with confident expectation as to what is coming in the future. For God to be the God of hope, this also means that he is the source of all true and lasting hope. He is the source of all true and lasting hope. In whatever situation you find yourself in, if you want to have hope, if you want to look forward to the future, you must be looking to God. And here in this verse, we see the ideas of faith and hope interacting a little bit. We see that it is through faith, through believing, that God fills us with joy and peace through believing, through trusting, through depending upon him. And the more we humbly trust God in all things, the more joy and peace we will experience. He's ready to fill us with those things. But let me, sometimes faith and hope get mixed up, and I know we've taught some on this in Hebrews, but but let me give you some concise working definitions that I've tried to use um, Specifically, just even this last week, as I'm thinking about the biblical exhortations that we have throughout Romans to live by faith and to hope in God, okay? These are not exhaustive definitions. These are not academic definitions. These are not even proofread definitions. So, uh, but these are, these are like what are in on my tool belt when I'm thinking about what does it mean to live by faith? What, it, what does it mean to hope in God? Um, you can help me continue to work on these definitions and make them uh, uh, better. But here's what we got so far. Living by faith, simple definition of what that means is, to, is that you are humbly trusting God in all things humbly trusting God in all things. Hoping in God. Now, we, we, we have a lot to hope for in the future because of what God's word has said, but hoping specifically in God, I feel like a working definition for that is, is in whatever situation you find yourself in, you are looking forward to knowing, enjoying, and glorifying God more through it. Now, we, you can leave that up on the screen for a little bit here. We, we have a lot to hope for in the future because of what God's word has said. We're looking forward to the future resurrection of the dead, uh, to, to God righting all wrongs, to living with him in the new heavens and the new earth. We have this hope that God will work all things together for our good. And so th- there's a lot of hope that we have, lots of things we can look forward to. But I was trying to get at in this definition as to the truth that there is a greater hope than in just hoping for the things from God, but actually hoping in him, hoping in who he is. I want to hope in God. I want to hope in him. I want him to be the treasure that I'm hoping for and looking forward to. Because look what he desires for us in verse 13. 
He desires that by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our, our, not by our own power or strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would abound in hope. This means that we would have an abundance of hope, that we would be rich in hope, that we would be so filled up with hope that we've got plenty of extra to go around and to share. I mean, if God is rich in mercy, shouldn't we be rich in hope? And oh, that the abounding of hope in here would overflow and cause hope to abound out there into the nations and to the ends of the earth. But here's the thing. I mean, if we have a God of hope who desires for us to abound in hope and empowers us to abound in hope, if he has given us the means of experiencing joy and peace through living by faith in him, then why are we so often without hope? Why are we so prone to despair and discouragement? Why are we many times lacking joy and peace? Has it been that we've been hoping for the wrong things? We've been hoping and trusting in things we believe that will give us more joy and peace than God himself will. We've been hoping and trusting in things that we can get from God and believe that they will give us more joy and more peace than he will. And so we despair. We get discouraged. We get depressed. And when this happens, this is a sign that we are putting our hope in the wrong things. We're putting our hope in insecure things, things that are fragile, things that God never promised to us. Maybe we've been hoping and trusting that once we have a certain amount of money in the bank account, then we will experience true joy and true peace. Now, if you ask people who God has blessed them with an abundance of wealth, you'll find that number always keeps getting bumped up a little bit. But what if God, what if God has allowed financial stress to come upon you so that you would hope in him? What if God is right now ready to fill you with all joy and peace as you humbly trust him in your time of financial strain? And what if you hoped in him? What if you faced this situation and in it you were looking forward to knowing and enjoying and glorifying him more as he brings you through it? That's what it looks like to hope in God. You face a circumstance that you're not wanting to be in and you Psalm 42.5 it. You guys know Psalm 42.5? We'll put it up on the screen. You got a Psalm 42.5 a lot of stuff, a lot of times, all right? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Stop hoping in all these lesser things that God has never promised you. Stop hoping in all these lesser glories that you think are going to bring you joy and peace. They might be good desires. They, they, you might have some good desires for the future, but don't be hoping in those things. Hope in God. 
And we shall again praise him, our salvation, our God. Why, why are we not abounding in hope? Maybe we've been hoping and trusting that once we have a certain image or physique or once we're noticed and affirmed by certain people, then we will experience true joy and peace. Maybe that's what our hope has been in. But what if God is ready to fill you with all joy and peace as you humbly trust him? in your time of insecurity and desire for approval? What if those things were meant to be found in him? What if you were humbly trusting God when you were feeling that way? What if you were hoping in him? What if you faced that situation looking forward to knowing and enjoying and glorifying him more as he brings you through it? Why are we not abounding in hope? Maybe we've been hoping and trusting that once we're in good health and all the labs are in range, then we will experience true joy and true peace. But what if God has allowed illness or disease to come upon you so that you would hope in him? What if God is ready to fill you with all joy and peace as you humbly trust him in your time of illness? And what if you hoped in him? What if you faced all the doctor's appointments and visits looking forward to knowing and enjoying and glorifying him more as he brings you through this? You see, your lack of joy and peace are coming from misplaced hope and trust, which really comes from misplaced worship. You, like the rest of the world, have been created to worship and exalt and glorify God. And when you're not doing that, life is, gets out of whack. That, and that is where this is all headed in the future. That is why, that, that, that is what we should be looking forward to, the worship of God increasing in our lives and increasing throughout the world. The God of hope is our source of hope. He is ready to fill us with all joy and peace as we humbly trust him in all things so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound in hope. Jesus told a story about two brothers. One day, the younger brother goes to the father and says that he wants the portion of his inheritance right now. Essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead and I could just have your stuff now, but since you're not, just give me, give me what you're going to give me then. Just let me take what, what I have and I'll, I'll go my way. The younger son hopes that the wealth of his father will be what gives him joy and pleasure and satisfaction in the future. And he probably hopes that it will last longer as well because he quickly squanders the things he got and soon finds himself in a famine, feeding pigs, longing to eat what they are eating. He comes to realize that his father's servants are at least well-fed, and so he decides that even though he's no longer worthy of deserving to be a son, he's going to go and ask to be a hired servant. I mean, at this point, he's lost the hope of ever being a son again, but he's hoping he can work his way to at least be a servant and deserving of some bread from his father. But the father will have none of this, will he? And not because he turns a cold shoulder to him, but because while he was a long way off, the father sees him, been looking for him, 
and feels compassion and mercy towards him and runs and embraces him and kisses him. And the son is like, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just let me work as a servant. And the father's like, no way, that's not how this works. And in an instant, he's clothed with the best robe and the signet ring, and they're bringing the fattened calf, and they're celebrating with a huge feast. And everybody's celebrating, except for the older brother. He hears that his brother is back, and instead of celebrating, he's angry and upset that some of what's left of the inheritance, which is now all legally his, some of what's left of the inheritance is now being used to celebrate this rebellious brother of his. Now what's going on here is that he too, just like his younger brother, is hoping more in the father's things and the joy and the satisfaction he thinks that those things will bring him more than he cares about fellowship with the father. And he refuses to go in with his father and celebrate. But once again, once again, we see this compassionate, faithful, trustworthy, patient father come out to him. And in Luke 15, 31, the father, he says to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, the sad thing about this story is that both brothers were missing out on fellowship with the father. Both brothers were initially trying to use the father to get what they really wanted, which was the father's things. Because their hope was in their father's stuff, not necessarily in their father. Both are trying to control their father instead of enjoy their father. Both were trying to control their father instead of enjoy their father. One did this through rebellion, and the other did this through self-righteousness. And both were hindered from knowing and enjoying and glorifying their father and living in harmony with their brothers. Because one thought he was too bad, and the other thought he was too good. Both were hindered from enjoying and glorifying the father, one because of his shame and feelings of unworthiness, and the other because he was bitter and angry, feeling as if his worthiness, his worthiness had gone unrecognized. But both were not looking forward to the future with their father. Both were not looking forward to the future with their father. Church. What are you looking forward to? The Lord kept putting that parable on my heart and mind these last few weeks as we talked about matters of opinion, matters of conscience, those that have a weak conscience on some things, those that have a strong conscience on some things. And he kept bringing this parable to mind because I think as we talk through some of these things and think through some of these matters of conscience, we can start to see both hearts being exposed in us and in our congregation the heart of the younger brother and the heart of the elder brother. Now, most church people lean towards the heart of the elder brother. And the elder brother, just like the younger brother, was not looking forward to the future with their father. Both the elder and the younger were missing out 
on enjoying a relationship with the Father. One, because he thought he was too bad. One, because he thought he was too good. Church, what are you looking forward to? What are you hoping in? Is God a part of the equation? I remember someone asking me this question. It's always stuck with me. What, like, what are you looking forward to most in heaven or, or in the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come? What are you looking forward to the most? And I know we all have plenty of things that we can think of that we look forward to. I mean, uh, just what it's going to be like and, and seeing uh, relatives that have, that have gone before us. And, um, you know, are we going to be able to fly? I don't know. I've got lots of questions, right? There's lots of things we could be hoping in and looking forward to. But listen, that future hope, is God a part of the equation? Because listen, the most amazing thing about heaven or the new heavens or the new earth, the most amazing thing about those things is that God is going to be there. <laughs> Both of these brothers were trying to control their father instead of enjoy their father. But church, oh, but church, in this story, see the love of God that Jesus reveals to us in this story. May you see the Father's love and mercy and compassion as he runs to the younger brother. And may you see his mercy and love and compassion as he patiently pleads with the elder brother. And then may you see that Jesus Christ is your true and better elder brother who came to this earth and he came and rescued you from your rebellion. And he did not object to you being clothed in robes of righteousness. In fact, he himself allowed himself to be stripped to make this happen. He did not scold you for squandering the inheritance, but instead has offered you what is rightfully his. And he is not ashamed to be called your brother. And he has welcomed you in and given you the inheritance that belonged to him. And therefore, church, may we hope in him. May we look forward to knowing, enjoying, and glorifying him more and more. May we not let our sense of unworthiness slow us down from fellowshipping with the Father. And may we not let our sense of worthiness and self-righteousness hinder us from feasting with our Father and our brothers. What were you hoping in? And what were you hoping for when you came to Christ? Were you looking forward to the things you felt you could get from God? Are you willing to let go of some of those lesser hopes in order to hope in God? So that in whatever circumstance you are in, your hope is secure and untouchable because you are looking forward to knowing, enjoying, and glorifying him more as he brings you through it. If we want to see hope abound to the nations, hope has to first start abounding in here. But not with hearts that are hoping for more control of God or hoping to make more demands of God because we deserve it. This is why you are cast down, O church. This is why you are in turmoil. Hope instead in God. Look forward to your future with God, which can start right now.
And may our hope abound to the ends of the earth. He who promised is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray.